Chapter Three, Part One of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memories of the Past, Part One. How rapidly old issues and old causes were fading into political obscurity was impressed upon the mind of the American people by the passing away, early in President Cleveland's administration, of many men whose names evoked innumerable memories, but whose careers already had receded into history. In 1885 died George B. McClellan and Ulysses S. Grant. In 1886, Chester Allen Arthur, Winfield S. Hancock, Horatio Seymour, and Samuel J. Tilden of these distinguished men too general grant and mr arthur had been presidents of the united states three general mcclellan general hancock and mr seymour had been unsuccessful candidates for the presidency one mr tilden will probably remain unique in american history as having been prevented by political intrigue from taking possession of the chief magistracy to which his countrymen had called him the names of general mcclellan and general grant are linked indissolubly with the annals of the civil war the history of the one not only supplements the history of the other but affords a striking contrast it was mcclellan's fortune to begin the task which grant completed mcclellan rests to-day beneath the shadow of imputed failure grant wears in history the laurels of supreme success the final judgment of posterity is a judgment from which appeal is hopeless yet in this one thing it is seldom wholly just it takes no heed of circumstances or conditions it makes no reservations it exacts unqualified acceptance it stands with a stolidity that is almost brutal upon the bedrock foundation of bare results in eighteen sixty one mcclellan then an ex-captain of engineers came to washington to assume command of the nation's military forces in succession to the infirm and aged scott a few successful skirmishes in west virginia which popular inexperience magnified into battles had won for him this swift promotion he found the capital in a state of chaos the rout at bull run had demoralized alike the army and the government raw levies from the north were encamped about the city ignorant of the very rudiments of military training and officered by no less ignorant civilians tradesmen lawyers and politicians as an army it was preposterous as the raw material of an army there was no better in the world but to convert this mob-like mass into a great fighting machine to give it discipline coherence confidence endurance and enthusiasm was a problem to appall the genius of a carnot yet this mcclellan did and he did it most superbly the impatient north smarting under defeat and fatuously expecting from a single campaign the conquest of an entire people of english stock read it at each moment of delay president lincoln and the bullying lawyer whom he had made his secretary of war were little less unreasonable mcclellan had the infinite misfortune to take command when the nation was still childish in its hero-worship and as yet unsobered by the stern realities of war men called the new commanding general the young napoleon but not napoleon himself could have satisfied the expectations of the northern editors and war-mad orators moreover mcclellan was charged with nursing political ambitions because of the foolish speeches of some of his party friends note one page ninety nine he became an object of suspicion to members of the cabinet first to stanton then to chase and a network of petty intrigue was woven around him to hamper and exasperate him 
the president believed in him yet never gave him a free hand in anything a morbid fear lest the confederates should make a sudden dash on washington came over lincoln from time to time and still more strongly over stanton and paralyzed the operations in the field the command was divided between halleck and mcclellan and divided command naturally brought divided counsels the army fought and fought heroically for it loved mcclellan no other general in that war ever so completely won the devotion of his soldiers an intelligent private who afterward published his recollections wrote soldiers eyes would brighten when they talked of him their hard lean brown faces would soften and light up with affection when they spoke of him note two page ninety nine defeat or victory it was all the same he never lost his hold upon the men who followed him that mcclellan was an able soldier and that his campaigns were ably planned is an assertion which rests upon the highest military authority general lee five years after the war when asked whom he regarded as the greatest of the northern generals answered emphatically mcclellan by all odds note three page ninety nine von moltke in eighteen seventy four said that mcclellan was the one scientific general on the northern side and that grant's final campaign was worked out successfully on the strategic lines which mcclellan had laid down in eighteen sixty two mcclellan pushed the union forces to within four miles of richmond after the seven days battle he was superseded by the boastful and incompetent pope under whom the army of the potomac was shattered at manassas and driven in panic flight to washington called in this dire emergency to command once more mcclellan restored as if by magic the morale of the army which greeted his return with frantic cheers and he soon after led it to the bloody field of antietam where he won a strategic victory over lee that he was presently sent into retirement and that his name no more appears in military annals must be ascribed to several circumstances the country had not yet learned that the conquest of the south was utterly impossible until it should have been drained to the last drop of its resources in bismarck's ghastly but expressive phrase saigner à blanc single victories were expected to crush the confederacy though the confederacy was still in the early years of its existence amply supplied with men and with munitions not intolerably pinched for money and flushed with the brilliancy of its initial victories president lincoln had not yet nerved himself to the point of contemplating bloodshed with a feeling that it was inevitable stanton and the radicals hated that general who if successful might prove to be a dangerous political opponent in consequence mcclellan fought as it were with a rope about his neck the delays the repulses the loss of life the inconclusive battles such as were afterwards so readily excused in grant were held to be unpardonable in mcclellan his twenty days successful siege of yorktown seemed to mr lincoln a waste of time quite unendurable whereas the months which grant devoted to the siege of petersburg brought on him no official criticism mcclellan's peninsula campaign was rendered fruitless by the sudden withdrawal of mcdowell's force of forty thousand men just at the psychological moment while grant's army was never weakened by executive interference the knowledge that his enemies in the government were as active against him as his enemies in the field intensified in mcclellan a certain caution of which undoubtedly he already had too much he exaggerated both the numbers and the equipment of the confederates after a battle he could never quite understand that while his own troops were shaken the enemy's army must be shaken quite as much he seemed not to realize that what the foe could do his men could also do if urged and so he balked at obstacles of which lee made small account 
he waited for supplies of food and clothing while the confederates marched hungry and in rags and therefore he failed to follow up successes when prompt action might possibly have dealt a crushing blow judgment is given against mcclellan because of the sequel to the battle of antietam speaking of this president lincoln said to mr albert d richardson note four page one hundred one i adhered to him mcclellan after all my cabinet advisers lost faith in him but do you want to know when i gave him up it was after the battle of antietam the blue ridge was then between our army and lee's we enjoyed the great advantage over them which they usually had over us we had the short line and they the long one to the rebel capital i directed mcclellan peremptorily to move on richmond it was eleven days before he crossed his first man over the potomac it was eleven days after that before he crossed his last man thus he was twenty-two days in passing the river at a much easier and more practical ford than that where lee crossed his entire army between dark one night and daylight the next morning that was the last grain of sand which broke the camel's back i retired mcclellan at once there is really no answer to be made to this yet it must be noted that when precisely the same thing occurred after gettysburg no official censure was passed on meade who let lee slip away although the southern army was badly broken and although the potomac in the rear of the confederates was swollen by a flood and for a time was practically unfordable in that case however lincoln merely wrote to meade a fatherly letter and even then refrained from sending it note five page one hundred two mcclellan in fact received one kind of treatment while meade and grant received a very different one what confirmed and fixed the unfavorable opinion of general mcclellan which many americans now entertain was the book which after his death was published under the editorship of mr w c prime note six page one hundred two mcclellan had left in manuscript for the private reading of his children his own account of his military career this was put into the hands of mr prime together with all the letters which mcclellan while at the front had dashed off to his wife from day to day mr prime most injudiciously gave to the public not merely the manuscript but also the private letters these letters were the confidences of a fond husband to an adoring wife and they were never meant for any eye but hers they are the hasty and unpremeditated expressions of a man labouring under immense responsibility and with every nerve strained to the highest pitch and they reflect accurately the moment's mood read fairly seven-tenths of what they contain should be eliminated in passing judgment on the writer of them the outbursts of impatience the unreserved freedom of criticism the blunt comments upon men and things are of no more real significance than the casual ejaculations and careless words of any one who finds that it relieves his mind to speak without restraint to a wholly sympathetic listener knowing that she to whom he wrote would rejoice in the honours that were paid him he tells her many things of which no man would ever speak save to a loving woman and then for her delight and not for his yet all these little confidences these tokens of an affectionate intimacy were set forth in cold type and they have been made to justify a condemnation of mcclellan even so sensible and fair-minded an historian as mr j f rhodes speaks of mcclellan's puerile vanity while upon the public mind there has been left a painful and quite false impression of fretfulness and pettiness and egotism all this is due to the mistaken zeal of mr prime who in discharging the duties of a literary executor dealt a cruel blow at the reputation of a gallant soldier for with all his military defects 
and these he shared with many others whose fame is now secure mcclellan was a brave unselfish lover of his country which in the hour of its black despair he served both faithfully and well whenever a pure democracy undertakes a great and bloody war some of those who serve it are certain to be sacrificed as the price of its education into an understanding of just what is needed for success in the american civil war it was mcclellan who was sacrificed by the time when grant was ordered from the west and pitted against lee the north had fully learned the lesson over which it had so badly bungled for three melancholy years all the bluster had been knocked out of it even the dullest minds perceived that a hostile army could not be routed by flag-raisings and florid oratory that very chinese mode of waging war was at an end and men now buckled down to grim realities sentimentalism had no more place soldiers were now food for powder and they were nothing else money was not to be saved and counted but must flow like water must be wasted even rather than withheld military amateurs to the rear professional soldiers to the front even law was silent amid the clash of arms citizens in the north who criticized the government were seized by armed men and hurried into fortresses newspaper offices were entered and their presses stopped the courts were open but their writs no longer ran a telegram from washington could send any man to fort lafayette a few lines scribbled by a general officer served to annul an order of the chief justice of the united states everything was forced to yield to the supreme exigency of war democracy for a time gave way to military despotism and so when grant was called to washington he was invested with a power which none of his predecessors had possessed note seven page one hundred four there was no check upon his authority in the field he was freed from stanton's interference even the president forbore to meddle and direct and the treasury poured out three millions of money every day to replace the regiments as fast as they were slaughtered grant was a tactician as mcclellan was a strategist as a soldier he resembled a lump of clay in which are embedded grains of gold his normal mediocrity was at times lighted up by gleams of genius he had moments of stolidity so dense as to be almost dullness and again he would rise to heights of magnificent efficiency the moral military qualities of courage responsibility and self-confidence he possessed in a rare degree and these were reinforced by a strong good sense which often served him as an admirable substitute for theoretical knowledge for his own technical deficiencies he once made a sort of apologia in the following shrewd sentences some of our generals failed because they work out everything by rule they knew what frederick did at one place and napoleon at another they were always thinking about what napoleon would do unfortunately for their plans the rebels would be thinking about something else i don't underrate the value of military knowledge but if men make war in slavish observance of rules they will fail no rules will apply to conditions of war so different as those which exist in europe and in america consequently while our generals were working out problems of an ideal character practical facts were neglected to that extent i consider remembrances of old campaigns a disadvantage yet grant's two signal triumphs donelson and vicksburg were won by a close adherence to the established rules of warfare the operations about donelson have been compared with napoleon's at ulm and at vicksburg his well-executed plan of crushing the enemy in detail was essentially napoleonic it was indeed at vicksburg that grant's military powers rose to a climax 
never again did he show so admirable a combination of strategic and tactical capacity so much skilful planning and so much energy of execution he seems himself to have understood this for he said long after i don't think there is any one of my campaigns with which i have not some fault to find and which as i see it now i could not have improved except perhaps vicksburg certainly he never again rose to the same height perhaps the explanation is to be found in the difference in military skill between his two opponents pemberton and lee placed at the head of the army of the potomac he fought the useless and bloody battle of the wilderness that name of horror from which he was forced back with a loss of twenty thousand men at spotsylvania he made three desperate frontal attacks upon a strongly fortified position with no result except a lavish loss of life then came the crowning blunder of cold harbor where again the confederate entrenchments were assaulted from the front and where within an hour twelve thousand union soldiers fell it was here that grant unmoved by the frightful loss of life ordered a third charge and the army remained motionless refusing to obey note eight page one hundred six had mcclellan or hooker or meade been guilty of so terrible a failure the whole nation would have demanded his disgrace even grant himself in after years spoke of cold harbor with remorse note nine page one hundred six in this one campaign which earned for him the title of the butcher he lost more men than lee had in his entire army but lincoln said as he had said after shiloh i cannot spare this man he fights here lay indeed the secret of grant's ultimate success he had grasped the one great central fact that his true objective was not richmond but lee's army to grapple with that army at any time or any place and at whatever cost in soldiers lives sums up the plan to which grant held inflexibly lee could no longer be reinforced his war-worn troops could with the greatest difficulty be fed and furnished with munitions back of grant there was always an unlimited supply of men of money and of all that money can procure hence in the end lee must succumb to the process of attrition involved in constant fighting there was no genius in this plan it bore the same relation to military science which slogging bears to scientific boxing but it was certain to succeed when carried out by one who had alike the authority to pursue it and the iron nerve to look unmoved on the fields of slaughter when lee finally surrendered there was nothing but a fragment of his army left half starved and ragged and at the very limit of what flesh and blood can bear the character of general grant is usually held to be an easy one to read and yet its curious contrasts indicate a singular complexity there were in it elements of undoubted greatness though few men have lacked so utterly the external marks of greatness a keen observer note ten page one hundred seven who saw him for the first time in eighteen sixty four described him as short round-shouldered utterly devoid of presence rough and with a rather scrubby look one who neither marched nor walked but pitched along as though his next step would bring him on his nose he had a cigar in his mouth and rather the look of a man who did or once did take a little too much to drink the only softening of this description is found in the mention of a clear blue eye and a look of resolution as of one who could not be trifled with general horace porter gives an almost pathetic picture of grant in the midst of the wilderness campaign clothed in a shabby tarnished uniform and whittling a stick with hands encased in brown thread gloves through the frayed finger ends of which his nails protruded note eleven page one hundred eight 
at the surrender of lee the confederate commander came to the interview as courtesy required in complete uniform and wearing at his side a jewelled sword grant came clothed in the garb of a private soldier spattered with mud swordless and with no sign of rank save the stars of a general stitched upon his faded blouse he carried this excessive simplicity into everything bred as a soldier he had no liking whatsoever for military pomp when he visited berlin in eighteen seventy seven the emperor offered for his entertainment the spectacle of a military review only to be met by the remark a military review is a thing which i hope never to see again he could not even bear the sound of martial music it was indeed no less as a civilian than as a soldier that grant secured the liking of his countrymen in many respects he exemplified the average american and he possessed in a high degree those homely virtues which the average american admires and respects he was a man of singular purity both in word and deed no one ever heard him use an oath and the strongest ejaculation that he is recorded as having uttered was the mysteriously bucolic expletive i jings general wilson tells an anecdote that is very characteristic one evening at dinner an officer of high rank who was noted for his repertoire of indecent stories remarked after glancing about the table i will tell a little anecdote as i see there are no ladies present ah said grant quietly with unmistakable intonation but there are gentlemen present note twelve page one hundred nine his nature had a strong domestic side when he was in camp at city point mrs grant would sometimes spend a few days at headquarters and to the amusement of the immediate staff she and the general would sit at dusk in an obscure corner of his tent holding hands like a pair of rustic lovers both of them greatly perturbed if some heedless person inadvertently approached them after death and when his body was being prepared for burial there was found about grant's neck a long tress of hair which had been sent him by his young wife thirty-two years before when he was a captain assigned to duty in the far west under an undemonstrative exterior he felt for his children an equal warmth of strong affection during his presidency his only daughter was married in the white house to an english gentleman with whom of course her home was to be made thereafter in a distant land throughout the ceremonies grant was gravely cordial a courteous host to all the company but after the young couple had said farewell the president was discovered to be missing after a time his wife sent to recall him and in his daughter's room with his face buried in his hands this iron soldier whom the horrors of the battlefield had never shaken was found sobbing like a child the contradictions in his character are difficult of explanation considerate tender-hearted and as merciful as lincoln himself he could yet order the sacrifice of thousands and look upon their slaughter with a perfectly impassive face shrewd and practical in military administration he failed to make even a comfortable living in civil life and when the war broke out he at the age of thirty-nine was a debt-ridden clerk in a country store with an annual salary of eight hundred dollars incorruptibly honest he was nevertheless surrounded throughout his presidency by stock-jobbers money-sharks ringsters and blacklegs of every sort whose baseness he could not be made to see so that he stood by them to the end with a loyalty which was at once sublime and pitiful his last years were clouded by the shadow of disgrace which came upon him from his business association with a common swindler by whom grant himself was ruined together with hundreds of unfortunate persons who had been lured to beggary by the misuse of an illustrious name in any other man such trustfulness such blindness to the truth would have been little less than imbecility 
in grant it was only one of the many paradoxes in a character which in its debts must always be inscrutable when he died his countrymen moved by the pathos of his end forgot the sordid drama of his presidency and remembered only the days of his true greatness his courage and tenacity and his noble magnanimity to a conquered foe throughout the future when his name is spoken it will inevitably recall the picture of a silent man on horseback unmoved unflinching undismayed one whom the mists of time have already blurred into a figure of heroic mould End of chapter 3, part 1